Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. It's a great day in America. Um, I, uh, we apologize for negotiating uh, the next three weeks while y'all are waiting, but we thought a couple of other folks uh, might come in. But we, today's hearing uh, is focusing on the effect of oil prices. Uh, with oil at over $100 a barrel not long ago, and now uh, rent being at 36 or $37 a barrel, obviously it has an effect on things. And let's face it, most Americans believe that uh, the price of petroleum and having access to, to energy has been a part of our foreign policy. And so today we have two outstanding witnesses to help us think a little bit about uh, the impact of what, is hap what the prices of oil is having uh, on our foreign policy and certainly on America. We obviously have significant conflicts that are taking place already uh, around the world. Um, whether it's in the Middle East, where we have a perceived and real, I think, proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran that's occurring. In Eurasia, where Russia is really uh, changing the fabric of, uh, of Europe right now and certainly um, has stepped in in Syria and totally changed the dynamics there. And yet, at the same time, is highly dependent upon oil resources to fuel what they're doing. In Africa, where Nigeria, uh, is, has an ongoing battle with Boko Haram. Uh, the effect on them is tremendous uh, relative to their ability to function as a government. And then in Venezuela, which uh, it's amazing that people have spoken. Uh, thankfully, uh, they won't change, and yet you have this country that should have, in many ways, the highest standard of living in the world. Uh, because of all the resources that they have, they've totally mismanaged those resources for a long, long time, and now all of a sudden uh, those resources are worth less in money and certainly creating chaos there. So we're glad you're here. Uh, we thank you for being here to, to uh, share with us your expertise, and with that, um, I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first of all, thank you very much for convening this hearing. It's, I think, an extremely important subject that we take up because there's no question that the economic and geopolitical effects of low oil and gas prices are not well understood here on Capitol Hill. So I think this hearing is particularly important. Uh, yesterday I filled up my car with gasoline. I was pleasantly surprised that I couldn't get more than about $24 worth of gas in my tank. Uh, I remember when it was closer to $50 that it cost me to fill up my my tank. And I know that my wife, has, who goes over our monthly bills on our MasterCard, uh, points out that uh, we are getting the benefits of lower gasoline prices. And uh, it is certainly welcoming to American consumers to pay less uh, for uh, their, their gasoline prices. Uh, but we also know that the world economy is performing at a very low level today, and oil prices are part of the reason why. We also know that China's appetite uh, has been diminished dr dramatically on the world marketplace. All of that uh, has added to the economic problems. There are much more sources of energy today than we've had in the past, uh, including the Iranian oil that is hitting the market, and uh, alternative renewable energy sources, plus conservation has reduced the demand uh, for fossil fuels. All that means that Demand is, is, uh, is not keeping up with supply, and the prices are dropping so from $115 a barrel to $35 a barrel. Uh, dramatic impact. 
So the question is, what impact does this have on the world economy? In the United States, our economy is doing fairly well. We've had a record number of months of, of job growth under the Obama administration. We've seen the unemployment rate uh, reduced by more than 50%. And our national deficit debt, annual growth in debt, down to what it was in 2009. These are all the envy of the world. So we're doing well in our local economy, but the global economy, obviously, we're very much dependent upon it. So if you're Iraq or Russia or Nigeria or Venezuela, where you're very dependent upon uh, fossil fuels in your economy, uh, this is having a major impact. It's also having an impact on the stability of these countries. These are not the best governed nations in the world. And when you put on top of that the problems of, uh, of energy prices, it really does compound uh, the concern about world stability. Those countries that have embraced diversified energy sources are doing well. Uh, there are many countries that have said, look, we're going to we're going to go all in on alternative energy and renewable energy sources, recognizing the, uh, the, uh, the resource curse of the past, saying, look, we can figure out a better way to handle our economic growth moving forward. And, and these countries have benefited uh, from uh, these types of, uh, of policies. So I look forward to hearing from our two witnesses. Uh, I think this is an incredibly important subject, but one in which we need more information. And we have two experts today, and we thank them both for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is Mr. Timothy Adams, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute of International Finance. We thank you for being here. Our second witness is Mr. Dr. Robert Kahn, Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, we thank you for lending us uh, an outstanding person to run our committee, by the way, the Council of Foreign Relations. But uh, we thank you, uh, again, both for being here. I know you understand. You can summarize your comments in about five minutes. Uh, without objection, your written testimony will become part of the record. Um, and if that, uh, uh, with that, if you'd begin, we'd appreciate it. Mr. Adams, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. Uh, it is an interesting topic. And let me just step back for a minute and, and paint a broader picture. I just got off a flight from spending a week in China. We had an event uh, alongside the G20 meetings. So I had an opportunity to spend my weekend with most of the G20 finance ministers and central bankers. I tell you, there's real concern about global growth. Uh, global growth is anemic. We've got the sixth straight year of sub 3% growth. Global trade volumes are a fraction of pre-crisis levels. Uh, we've lost $10 trillion worth of wealth in global markets since June of last year, rising debt levels globally. Emerging market uh, sovereign debt has gone from 150% of GDP to 200%. Uh, EM, uh, uh, emerging market corporate debt has gone from 55% of GDP to 90%, almost doubling. 20% of that is foreign currency denominated, mostly dollars, but some euros. Last year, our own analysis shows that net capital flows out of the emerging markets was a record $734 billion, probably $400 billion this year, record outflows, slowing productivity, falling return on equity, falling earnings, falling pricing power, rising MPLs, uh, historic credit downgrades, S&P and Moody's uh, have just set a record for the number of downgrades and credit watches they put in place for emerging market corporates and even sovereigns overnight. Uh, Moody's uh, put a warning on Chinese sovereign debt, which I found interesting. Uh, central bankers are uh, engaged in quantitative easing and potentially at the end of this historic policy experiment. So there's a question about 
uh, the viability of additional quantitative easing? Are we at the diminishing uh, returns of, of this policy uh, measure? Uh, fears of deflationary pressures. 30% of developed market sovereign debt is now trading at negative yields, $7 trillion worth of sovereign debt, negative yields. Fiscal policy is paralyzed in many parts of the world, and banks are struggling. Uh, European banks have a trillion euros worth of MPLs. Uh, they face a flat yield curve, which means their net interest margins uh, are narrow. They're facing new entrants. They have high compliance costs and it's not clear uh, how they'll manage uh, their balance sheets. And then there are political uncertainties that overhang uh, global markets. Brexit, uh, the fear that the UK will vote uh, in June to leave the EU, and then our own presidential election cycle, which uh, was the talk of, uh, of, of the G20. Certainly lots of questions about my own party's uh, direction. Uh, and with that, we have the issue of oil prices. You mentioned a 70% drop in oil prices since mid-2014. And our own analysis, which as you noted is a part of the record, we've ranked countries uh, based on what we see as most vulnerable, code red, the next level of vulnerability, code orange, and so on and so forth. For the most vulnerable, we see Venezuela. I know my good friend and uh, Dr. Khan will talk about Venezuela, Iraq, Libya, Angola, Bahrain. Next level of concern, Nigeria, Russia, Azerbaijan, Oman, and Algeria, and they're all different. And if, if you look at them as a group in the last year, there's actually been you know, fairly substantial amount of adjustment going on. Fiscal tightening, higher taxes, higher fees, spending cuts in a lot of places, and notably with respect to subsidies, either subsidies for gasoline or domestic fuel subsidies, or higher fees on utilities. We see that in Saudi Arabia, for example. And then, it, then cuts in discretionary, and unfortunately many times in, in investment in capital expenditures and infrastructure. Uh, the military expenditures seem to be walled off, especially in places like Russia. We've seen exchange rate flexibility, either depreciation or devaluations. Many of them drawing, uh, the oil producers drawing on their reserves. And there's where sovereign wealth funds have actually been an important shock absorber, as many countries have relied on their foreign net assets as a way to cushion uh, the, uh, their various imbalances, uh, borrowing more from abroad, and then there is some diversification with respect to economic activity, but still there is huge exposures externally with respect to their physical exposures, Angola, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and exposure to China as well. Angola stands out. Uh, domestic political instability, Libya, Iraq, uh, sanctions, geopolitical risk, Russia, and then poor and brittle institutional quality and lack of public trust and again, Nigeria and Angola. There are some benefits to this massive terms of trade shock. The ranking member noted it's been a, a, a substantial boost to consumption globally. It's like a massive tax cut. So we've seen a positive impact in the US and Europe and Japan and many other emerging markets like India, Indonesia and Turkey, for example. Uh, we do see countries responding by uh, reducing distortion producing subsidies. So there's a positive aspect. And uh, one benefit is, is the observation that many of these countries have had in place for some time really strong sovereign balance sheets. And I think that's a powerful feedback mechanism to tell these countries that in good times they really need to build reserves and ensure they have appropriate and solid macroeconomic uh, regimes in place. And then I think this one, and uh, conclude, uh, one positive aspect is we are seeing uh, more transparency in many places, Nigeria, for example. Uh, which is forcing better government and, in fact, a real reform in some of the oil-producing 
infrastructure and decision-making uh, processes in many of these countries, greater transparency on, on how these revenues uh, are collected and where they're spent, I think is positive not only for those countries, but also globally. With that, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Khan. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, th thank you very much for the invitation to testify today on this important topic. Uh, my opening remarks, uh, drawing from my longer testimony, I'd like to touch on the outlook for prices, why I think 2016 will be a year of, of intensified uh, pressures on emerging market energy exporters, and explore some of the policy options that, that we all uh, have for addressing these challenges. First, regarding the outlook, uh, and I very much agree with what Senator Cardin said in terms of the fact that supply fa a broad range of supply factors, shale and gas revolution, new technologies, uh, brought supply online, and of course, uh, as the Senator mentioned, uh, geopolitical pressures on countries like Saudi Arabia to keep pumping uh, are also playing a role. Weakness in demand, also a very important part of it. And my, under, my assessment of this is, while acknowledging the uncertainties surrounding the uh, global outlook and energy markets are very high right now, uh, it could take several years uh, in, in the current environment to work off the kind of imbalances we now see in the market. So certainly I'm comfortable with the view that says low oil prices are, are, are going to be persistent, if not permanent. Now these lower oil prices, in my view, are, were a small drag on U.S. growth last year, which wasn't the, isn't the way it has been in history, uh, but we saw a 40% drop in capital expenditure on, in oil and gas sector, and that canceled the boost from higher consumer spending. Now, one reason we, were, we had what I would consider a muted consumer response may have been the desire by many consumers to fix their uh, balance sheets after the damage caused by the Great Recession. And that's a healthy development, and it also leaves one with some hope that as uh, time goes on, consumers could become more willing to spend, and indeed we could get that kind of more traditional relationship that lower oil is on net a plus for U.S. growth. But right now, it's pretty much an offset. Now, the main point here for today is the U.S. economy is not immune from oil-related turbulence abroad. Many of the emerging markets in turmoil share tr very close trade and financial linkages with us. Uh, stock market turmoil, as you know, in recent months has contributed to a tightening of financial conditions. Uh, I do think that one of the factors in the January sell-off may have been sovereign wealth funds in these energy exporting countries selling off uh, the assets that, as Tim alluded to, and the appreciation of the dollar along with lower oil is imparting a, a deflationary impulse to the economy. All this suggests U.S. policymakers are going to continue to need to be alert to the risks emanating from abroad. Now, turning to the emerging markets, uh, I, I do agree with Tim that there have been some important uh, uh, adjustments made in some countries, the beginning of reform efforts, but still I would say in broad terms, looking across the major exporters, that 2015 was a year when adjustment was delayed, sovereign wealth funds were drawn down, infrastructure investment deferred, all in the hope that oil prices would return to previous highs. And while that was understandable, I think it's only recently that many of the countries began to come to grips with the fact that oil is $30 a barrel, not 100 at that price, there's this historic gap between the market price on one hand and what we call the fiscal break-evens, the level of oil that really balances the books and allows the politics to be stable within these countries. And what it suggests to me is that in 2016, uh, while there are still some parts of the oil exporting world, particularly in the Gulf, where there are significant buffers and wealth fund balances that can be drawn on, in more and more countries, uh, those buffers have been worked through and muddling through is no longer a viable option. And this worries me that there is the potential for dip 
disruptive adjustment, political and economic, in these countries in 2016. Now, the economic playbook uh, for reform is pretty straightforward. It involves moving energy prices to world market levels. Uh, historically, these energy prices have been a, a dis uh, distorting and overly generous sort of part of the safety net. You need to target the safety net on those most in need and get the prices right. You need to get your exchange rate back to market levels if you can. And I believe the IMF can play a vital role in support of these efforts reinforcing US strategic interests in this area. There's been some very good work from the fund in the last couple of years. I think they're getting it right in terms of the analysis. And they have been making a big effort in recent months to reach out to countries like Nigeria uh, to get, establish a dialogue ahead of the actual crisis. And I think that's a good thing we should support. In my report, I touch on a couple of countries at risk. I'm particularly worried about Iraq, as are others, where uh, terrorist attacks and infrastructure weaknesses disrupted production and, 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 and contributed to a 15% of G GDP fiscal deficit, which is clearly not sustainable uh, for very long. I have written in the past a fair amount about how in Russia, uh, poor policies, long history of poor policies, low investment in energy, and sanctions, which I think are a powerful multiplier on those, on those problems, have enacted a growing drag on the economy. Asset funds there are being diminished. It's not, it's not viable. Uh, but, uh, and I do think there's going to be very tough political and economic choices made there over the next year. Nigeria, we've touched on. Uh, I don't think they have the buffers to deal with very large uh, deficits that have emerged. They've turned to the World Bank for money, but I, don't think, I think they'll need more. But I want to spend just a moment more on Venezuela, because I think of all the countries that are at risk, this is, you know, this is the one we need to be the most focused on right now, because Venezuela is an economy on the edge. They're descending into a deep and profound crisis, reflected in severe shortages, hyperinflation, and a collapse in economic activity. They have a widening financing gap, shrinking reserves, which probably are much less than they report they are. And the measures they took recently were real, woefully inadequate to deal with the imbalances that they uh, now face. If the government responds by further compressing imports, a popular support for the government could collapse very quickly. And so, in my view, a default and, and the chaos that would come after that is a question not of if, but when. Now, the current government of Venezuela obviously is unlikely to seek help from international financial institutions or the US, and it will generally refuse cooperation with Western governments. But it's not too early to begin planning for a time when a future Venezuelan government is willing to take the hard measures that warrant strong and broad international support. That program is going to require very significant financing. Uh, probably will require private debt restructuring and support from all official creditors. And you've you know, dealt with these issues in countries like Ukraine recently, and similarly, it'll be at play there. China's role is going to be critical here because they need to be a constructive partner of the IMF and of the United States as part of building an, inf an architecture for that ultimate rescue package uh, rather than be oppositional or outsided, as we saw with Russia in the case of Ukraine. Now, broadening back out in conclusion, failure to address these imbalances will translate into crises much larger scale and spillover in the United States and elsewhere in unexpected fashions. I think where there is a willingness to take tough measures, there are very important benefits to financing packages led by the IMF, supported by very strong market adjustments. Um, low energy prices are going to continue to generate global risks, and we need to be thinking ahead and ready to act when the opportunity presents itself. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Um, look, I 
certainly agree we need to pay a lot of attention in this own, in our own hemisphere relative to instability and, and uh, I know during this hearing that will be focused on. But the, the title of the hearing is Economic and Geopolitical Implications of Low Oil and Gas Prices. Obviously that's generated by the very comment you referred to of Senator Cardin's and that is uh, excess supply. And I wonder, I know both of you focus more on economic issues, but is there anything that you see about what is occurring with oil that you think should in any way affect U.S. policy towards the Middle East in general? The massive increase in U.S. oil production over the past 10 years has been phenomenal. You know, there was a period in the 80s and 90s where we were seen as having diminishing capacity to produce oil. Uh, and also, remember, that was a time we are also building uh, LNG import facilities, and now we're one of the larger producers of, of gas and in the effort of uh, the process of converting those into export facilities. So it gives us enormous independence and has been, I think, the, the, the real game changer with respect to supply characteristics, which you described. And not only supply characteristics, but there was an article on Bloomberg this morning that noted that just working off the inventories that have uh, accumulated over the past year may take uh, years, maybe a decade. So I think the supply-demand imbalances, even if you fix them, the inventory levels are enormous. But it does, I think it changes the public's perspective about how we engage and the role that we play in the Middle East. And I think we see that filtering into the, the public debate and the political debate with respect to the current election cycle. And can we, can we wean ourselves from our dependence on Middle Eastern oil, although prices are set globally, so you're always subject to price swings, but can we wean ourselves and does that change our posture in the Middle East and does it, does it impact the way in which this committee and our government thinks about the U.S. role in that part of the world? Well, should it? Should I think, it? I think I'd just add that uh, the best thing we probably can do to provide stability in global energy markets is to support political stability in these regions and, uh, and strong economic policy. I mean, if you think about the Middle East, I think we have to be humble that we're in the midst of a 30-year political transition, which is stressing borders and governments, and it's creating strong domestic dynamics that are affecting the interests and willingness to provide oil or not provide oil. And in some ways, we have to be cognizant of the fact it's probably relatively limited we can do in the short run other than try and provide the conditions for political stability. I think Senator Cardin mentioned you know, the, the Saudi-Iran uh, dimension of this is, is, is typical, but not uh, alone in that regard, in the sense that from the Saudi perspective, low oil prices provide geopolitical advantages in terms of constraining uh, Iranian ambitions in the area. If that is the view, that would be a compelling reason besides the simple economics that would, would, speak, would influence the decisions on providing oil. So I think at the end of the day, political stability will drive economic stability rather than the other way around. I'm going to reserve the rest of my time for interjections and, and turn to Senator Cardin. Thank you. Well, again, thank both of you for your, for your uh, testimony. There is a lot in common in the countries that you mentioned that are fragile or more fragile today as a result of the reduction of, of oil prices. These are countries that have serious corruption issues. They are not good governance countries. 
There are countries whose values are much different than our values. Uh, and there are countries that don't put a very high uh, priority on innovation and creativity and developing an alternative economy. Um, and therefore, the historic term resource curse applies very clearly uh, to these countries. And with lower oil prices, uh, they're feeling the, the, um, the real effects of their dependency on an energy economy. Uh, it was interesting, the observations about the Saudis that they may be doing this to reduce the influence of Iran in the, in the region. One could argue that the reduced energy prices also reduces Russia's influence in the region, although Russia certainly has not shown any propensity to slow up its involvements. Uh, in Ukraine or in Syria. But it also could have an impact against the priority for innovation for alternative and renewable energy sources. Uh, one has, there's been at least some articles written that the Saudis may be doing this intentionally to deal with our shale oil issues to keep the prices non-competitive for the development of additional re uh, fossil resources here in, in the United States. Uh, some of us were at uh, COP21 in, uh, in, in Paris. We saw 196 nations come together to, to reduce our dependency on greenhouse gas emission energy sources. And one of the more uh, hopeful uh, events that we attended was uh, Secretary Moniz and the innovation uh, 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 exhibit he showed us. We, we got to see uh, uh, a, a, a car, Mr. Chairman, that was manufactured in your state with 3D printer at the Oak Ridge National Lab. Fascinating. Uh, a 3D car. Uh, uh, Shelby Cobra, just to get the, the name. And in my own state of Maryland, we're working on oxide fuel cells, solid oxide fuel cells with the University of Maryland, uh, with private companies and Department of Energy. I mention that because one of the impacts of lower oil prices could be to uh, slow down innovation for alternative renewable energy sources because of the pricing of, of, of gasoline being so cheap. Why bother? Oil being so cheap, might as well use it more. So I, th I think it's an issue that we need to look at. On the other side of that, as I pointed out, countries that are diversifying, India, for example, is showing a remarkable improvement in their economy because they're diversifying. China's reaching out to diversify their economy on renewable sources. So I just if you could comment a little bit more as to whether the silver lining through all this uh, alternative and renewable energy sources less dependent upon oil from or fossil fuels from countries that disagree with our way of life, whether the trend line as a result of lower prices will continue to be favorable towards the West or are we going to be held hostage now to low prices making us more dependent upon fossil fuels? A couple of thoughts. I, I very much agree with you that the, uh, the extent we and others uh, diversify to broader sources of energy, it provides a geopolitical as well as an economic uh, security. And it was very much, for example, in the discussion with the Europeans about sanctions on Russia. This was very much central to the in, in terms of our desire for the Europeans as well to move in the direction of alternative fuels and the like. I suppose the one other point I would just add, and it's, it speaks to this issue also to Senator Corker's earlier question about the, in terms of the Saudi idea that you could, you can by keeping prices, or the argument some have made that the Saudis by keeping prices low for a period of time can drive out some shale producers, can discourage 
the kind of very expensive, high fixed cost, uh, deep water drilling that a lot of the country, other countries are doing, want to do. Uh, and then they, they can raise prices again. And I, can, I understand the first part of the argument, but not so much the second. I think it is important to recognize that kind of that traditional model of a cartel that can have strong control over market, I don't think really speaks to the current environment. I think as we saw with the recent discussions uh, of a number of countries, including the Russians and the, uh, uh, and the Venezuelans over possibly restrict, hold, just simply holding output to the very high levels we had in January, and they were not really able to sustain that. So I think the sort of idea that Saudi can be the kind of swing producer that they had been historically, I think very much is not so much the case. Now part of that, of course, is shale and the quick rapid supply response we would see if prices went up again. So I do think that while it's certainly right to say you're going to get the substitution effects that you're describing, uh, I think if the goal somehow is to, is, to, is to have these kind of monopoly effects, I think that's very much misguided in the current market. I, I would just add, if, if you look at a, a supply cost curve, prices at these levels certainly make uh, renewables and shale and obviously deep water uh, uneconomical. And the markets have figured it out. That's why many of these shale companies have funded themselves with high yield debt that's blowing up in the markets. And there's enormous bank exposure, U.S. institutions, European institutions, just an article in one of the uh, papers this morning about Canadian banks have $80 billion exposure to the energy sector, some of it because of the tar sands out in um, Alberta. But it, 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 it's not as if that technology and those assets are going away. In fact, over time, the technology will just, and the fracking technology is getting better, it's getting cheaper. So that cost curve will shift over time, but I suspect it is a, and I don't know the intentions of the Saudis, but I suspect it is a way to drive out everything above that cost curve out of business or mothball it. Some of it can come back quickly. I understand shale can be put back into production pretty quickly. Others, like deep water, may take a decade. So I, I, I do believe it is having a profound effect on renewables and other sources of, 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 of production. Let me ask one additional question. You, you both, I think, mentioned the fact that uh, the countries that are so dependent upon fossil fuels are going to go through a, a need for international intervention, uh, at least seeking some help from the, uh, the development banks and the and international support. Uh, is it likely that these countries, such as Venezuela, that has a poor record of governance, that will be able to leverage the type of reforms uh, on their energy sector and on their governmental sector where the international involvement will have a positive impact on the stability of that country uh, moving forward? Is that realistic to expect that could happen? What do you think? Uh, the track record isn't particularly good in this regard, to be honest about that. Uh, I, I think we have to try. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I do believe that uh, distorted policies in the energy sectors in these countries is a source of corruption. It's one of the major sources of distortions of relative prices and misallocation of investment uh, in these. And so if, you, if they do turn to the West for help, if rescue packages involve bring, you know, really dramatically going after these sectors, getting prices to world levels, trying to get the incentives right, dealing, rooting out the, the corruption, I think you can build a lot of confidence and trust in that government. You can, as I say, get the investment incentives right. So that, uh, and I, I think you can make a huge difference, and I think you've got to try to do that. 
But you know, countries, it's hard to maintain popular support for what's a very distorted adjustment. You have to get a safety net in place that really replaces these uh, energy subsidies that, that have been there uh, with uh, a targeted safety net so that you really are helping the, the most in need. And so, I mean, I think we've learned a lot over the last years in countries that have struggled with this. Uh, I mentioned Ukraine is one that's struggling with this right now. Uh, so I think it's worth trying, but uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it's a tough, it's a tough job, and it requires very strong political support for the government to be sustained during it. Well, I just mentioned I think it's one area this committee may want to take a look at, Mr. Chairman, is, yeah. is we see uh, the international organizations that we have jurisdiction over here, their involvement in this. Uh, absolutely, we should be demanding that there be accountability for uh, our participation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Flood. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. <clears throat> um, turning to Iran for a minute, Iran was expected to get a pretty big uh, windfall with uh, assets being released and uh, um, being able to sell oil on the world market without restriction. How much has that been negated uh, by low oil prices with regard to Iran? What, uh, what is it going to mean to economic growth there in the next year or two? Sure, it is. Uh, I've got my latest numbers on Iran. It is, it is only delayed. It hasn't really thwarted. There's been a tremendous amount of interest, certainly from European officials and European institutions, as well as Asian institutions, to provide uh, capital expenditures, capital equipment, and infrastructure to Iranians, which now have access to hundreds of billions of capital to spend. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure governments are willing to, in Europe and Asia, to provide appropriate uh, financing for, uh, for uh, infrastructure spending. So I think what we'll see, and we'll probably drive growth, our own estimates for Iran, is that we'll see uh, growth jump to about 6% this year, simply because of the massive amount of investments that are going to go into what is, what is a fairly diversified economy, mm -hmm. but a massive amount of investment that will go into the hydrocarbon infrastructure uh, that will be sold and financed from a variety of places around the world. So that production is coming back on. It's coming on pretty quickly. I'd say in a matter of years, we're back to pre-sanctions production levels. Uh, and some of that's now being priced into the, uh, to the markets. Mm -hmm. But I would say that it's, it's only slowed. It has not stopped. And then there is a, there is a gold rush into Iran to sell and be a part of the renewal of that economy. Mr. Khan, you agree? All right. Turn to Angola for a minute, a country like Angola that's had uh, problems and has relied on the higher oil prices to fund uh, uh, its activities, its governmental activities, and, I mean, world of corruption there as well. What does this mean to Angola, these prices? Well, uh, my estimates are, first of all, the oil accounts for two-thirds of government revenues and 90 percent of their exports, and they have enormous exposure to China. So it's not only oil exposure, but it's exposure to the cyclical uh, changes in China. Uh, heavy government borrowing. Uh, GDP has doubled over the last couple of years, but we see a massive shift in their current account deficit, about 10 percent of GDP. They're borrowing, drawing down on their reserves. They're borrowing in capital markets. In fact, far, uh, we expect uh, external borrowing to hit $31 billion over the next two years, which is enormous given the size of their GDP. Economic growth was slow to about 3%, so down about half of their, uh, the pace of growth prior to the drop in oil prices. Uh, annual budget deficit is about 6% of GDP, and inflation is running about 14% uh, 
Uh, they have general elections in 2017, but the current president's been in power for 36 years. So it's not clear what general elections actually mean. All right. it, uh, it will mean more, uh, probably, to a country like Nigeria that just went through elections and uh, turned in the right direction, uh, as far as we're concerned. Uh, what If uh, oil stays below $50 a barrel for another year or two, what are we looking at in Nigeria? Mm -hmm. Some thoughts on Nigeria? Yeah, I, uh, well, just, uh, it's, a, it's a segue, I think, in, in Angola, when you see this type of spending, unsustainable buildup of debt, and an election well into the future, it is a recipe for, uh, for too little too late in terms of policy adjustment and a crisis mm -hmm. at a future date. And I, I'm, I get very worried when I see that type of debt accumulation that it's going to the wrong places. Um, and I think in some ways that's a bit of the legacy of Nigeria. Now, you know, Nigeria, to its credit, I think had made in, in, in past years uh, some significant reforms and efforts to really diversify away from, from energy. Indeed. And, I, and I, uh, others know this better than I, but I, my sense is that, that, that they deserved credit for that. And there were elements of good economic management within that. But it was, it was a fragile stability. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen with the... Um, uh, the recent run-up in the deficits and the like, that despite cutting government investment, uh, you're, you're seeing a real squeeze on, pri on the private sector mm -hmm. in Nigeria. And I think that is a real concern that the kind of gains that we saw would be lost over time. Uh, obviously, you know, if we get into a situation where this government has to start cutting social spending uh, in the context of these deficits, it could be really destabilizing, quite destabilizing politically. That would be a concern of mine. And Traditionally, I've been worried about the Nigerians being too late to come to the, to the international community and say, you know, and to ask for help. In that regard, uh, I, I welcomed the fact that they went to the World Bank uh, for support and advice. There was some technical, there was a technical mission with the IMF. There's still a big stigma there for this government with asking the IMF explicitly for help. But my, my expectation is that's going to have to change. I, I'm probably a little more optimistic. You know, Nigeria has enormous infrastructure problems. If you've ever taken, if you've ever driven from downtown hotels to Lagos Airport and the four hours that that trek takes, you know that the needs for infrastructure, the Bihari government is, is certainly said all the right things. They've got the cabinet in place. I'm hopeful that they'll able to be able to follow through on uh, reform of the, the petroleum uh, industry, greater transparency. As we all know, there's been uh, enormous amount of leakage, no pun intended, with respect to the way in which uh, oil revenues have been allocated. Uh, they do have plans for enormous amount of infrastructure, which the country desperately needs. They are a diversified economy. Agriculture, services, construction uh, is quite vibrant. You know, th there are still distortions. They're limiting access to dollars. They're in an effort to try to create a sort of an import substitution policy, forcing locals to buy locally. If you're a businessman and you're a manufacturing, you're trying to import spare parts, you can't get access dollars to do that. And it's, takes a time, it takes some time before a domestic industry props up. You, if you want to get Colgate toothpaste in Lagos, it's really hard. You've got to buy the local brand, mm -hmm. which is fine. Mm -hmm. But I'm actually optimistic. I think for the first time in decades, that country at least has the right, the right political leadership in place and the capacity to be a player. And let's hope they are. They have 180 million people in that country. By 2050, they'll have 400 million. Their population will exceed that of the United States. So we, we should invest some time and energy in that country and, and make sure they get it right. Okay. Well, thanks. I don't have time, but I was going to ask if we were on, in Mozambique, myself and Senator Cardin, and they're counting on the large 
offshore natural gas production coming online in about uh, three or four years. And, uh, but if we get a second round of question, I'd love to talk about that. Before I'm turning to Senator Menendez, I, you know, I think it's both my words and my actions have demonstrated I am no fan of Iran. But if you look at their debt to GDP numbers, it's been fascinating that during this period of incredible sanctions, they have managed to keep debt to GDP low while we have been feckless on both sides of the aisle and allowed our nation to become incredibly weak. It's been fascinating to watch, but with that, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, before I turn to the subject at hand, I just want to recognize that the UN just passed the toughest sanctions against North Korea in 20 years. And I appreciate the leadership of this committee, both of you and the ranking member, uh, and the work uh, that we did with Senator Gardner to lead on this issue. And I think there are moments that when we lead, we gather the world's attention and we focus it, and today's a good example of that, so I, I wanted to just note that. Um, thank you both for your testimony. Um, and uh, Mr. Adams, thank you for sending it in advance, and I read it and it didn't uh, provide for a lot of optimism uh, at the end of the day, so, but I appreciate the insights. And certainly, while the precipitous decline in oil prices has benefited uh, oil importing economies by raising household disposable income, by lowering inflation, by increasing market competitiveness for products produced in these economies, that same decline in, process, in prices has put oil exporting countries under significant pressure, particularly those exporting countries that either lacked the foresight or the capacity to diversify their economies. And so for these countries, loss of oil-related revenues and oil-related economic activity can be catastrophic. And I want to talk about that a little bit with you. Uh, but in one sense, that shouldn't be a surprise. Countries that are uh, and have depended on revenue from oil as its almost singular source is vulnerable to its price. Uh, and the more they depend, the more they're impacted. Uh, Mr. Khan, thank you for your testimony. Now, from a foreign policy perspective, it struck me that low oil prices might be a forcing function for economic diversification, uh, but, that's, uh, but this is not the first downturn um, that many of these vulnerable countries have endured. So do you see opportunities here? Uh, as we were talking, and I agree totally with Senator Cardin vis-a-vis uh, -vis Venezuela, which this committee has had actions on, I, I would think uh, international financial institutions uh, would be advocating in these more vulnerable countries because of their dependency on oil for policies in support of economic diversification. Is that something that you see as an opportunity to happen? Well, I absolutely do think it is an opportunity. And I think when a country, as one of these countries, respond to a decline in prices uh, promptly with uh, an economic adjustment program that seeks, you know, the, uh, sort I talk about in my testimony, it absolutely, the, the sovereign wealth funds can provide a buffer to allow for that adjustment to take place because these things do take time. And I think it can be hugely positive in terms of long-term growth potential. It can be a forcing uh, event to get rid of these very distortive uh, subsidies. But I think the honest reality is that in many cases there are strong political incentives uh, for these countries to kind of 
delay, right, to, to, to convince themselves that prices will come back up, that the, the deals that have to be cut to, to live with lower oil prices within the country uh, are too difficult, and to spend them, and to not be willing to talk to the international community until it's really quite late in the game. And isn't, isn't that then the leverage moment for these international financial institutions? Because they may not want to do that and may be recalcitrant because of their expectations that prices will rise, they won't have to change yeah. their, their operating. But it seems to me that that's the moment that the international financial institutions should leverage to try to get them to do so. It's what they should be doing. And, I, and to give them credit, I think the IMF is making a real effort right now to get out to the oil exporters and to have exactly this kind of conversation with them. And there have been, at least from press reports, some noticeable successes with Nigeria, with Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, a few other countries. But I, I think there's still a stigma uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, to coming to the IMF. I think there's sometimes legitimate concerns in these countries that to do so almost is a signal uh, to their private sectors that things are worse than they seem. And so certainly to the extent the international community, the G20, including the G20, uh, which Tim can talk to, can, can try and find ways in which to facilitate these discussions, it's all for the good. Mm -hmm. Now, in the context uh, on a flip side of this, uh, in terms of our use of peaceful diplomacy tools, sometimes when we cannot get countries to observe the international order uh, and to, and impervious sometimes to international opinion sufficiently to get them criticism, to get them to move in a different way, uh, and our use of our aid and our trade hasn't induced them to move in a better direction, sometimes we turn to sanctions as a use of uh, peaceful tool of international uh, efforts. And so I, I think about uh, Russia, Ukraine, Crimea, I think about Iran and its nuclear program, but beyond its nuclear program, what they're doing with the uh, Houthis in Yemen, what they're doing in, in Syria, what they're doing in expansion of missile, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile technology. Uh, and and I, I say to myself, Obviously, the precipitous drop of oil has a multiplying factor in those economies. I, th I think that's a fair statement. Uh, while sanctions are existing, there's a multiplying factor. Is there, and I, I offer this question to either one of you or both, do you see a point, I, I, think, I think maybe it was you, Dr. Khan, that called it a fiscal break-even price uh, at which Russia finds itself unable to sustain its foreign policy. Is there a point at which the Iranian regime might be unable to sustain policies for support for Assad, Shia militias in Iraq, uh, the Houthi insurgency in Yemen, the financing of billions of dollars to uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, um, and in Venezuela, which has a, another challenge to it, one internally, but it has been giving free oil, a largely subsidized oil, to countries throughout the hemisphere. That has an even bigger ripple effect at the end of the day. Um, so could you talk, either, either of you or both of you, talk to us in that regard? How do you see um, when, when it is that they can no longer continue, that they're going to have to alter because of fiscal realities some of those policies? Well, we have with us, and we can submit for the record, current uh, break-even uh, fiscal points. But, and it, but as the spectrum goes, Iran is pretty close to the bottom. Uh, our latest estimates are about $80 uh, barrel for Brent and probably coming down, and in many countries it's coming down simply because of the fiscal adjustments they're putting in place. So some of them have been quite large, over $100, $110, $120 a barrel, and have been going up over the last uh, uh, few years 
from about uh, 2000 up until about 2012 because of the spending sprees that went on, uh, you know, on in many of these countries. But they're starting to see an adjustment. Uh, I think we're a long way from creating that kind of pain, especially mm -hmm. in Russia. Uh, although they are blowing through their reserves pretty quickly, and by the end of 2016, there'll be maybe 15 billion left in their reserve fund. It, as you get into 2017 and a new election cycle, they'll be forced to take even further measures. They've been walling off military expenditures uh, and focus most of their cuts on social programs and investment. At a certain point, they'll have to rethink that mix. But I, I want to go back to your point about diversification. The, the, the best job among the consulting business now is to have a, an account in Riyadh. The, the, the airplanes out of Dubai into Riyadh are full of, of contractors trying to sell diversification. The, the uh, deputy crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who's actually doing a tour of the U.S. soon, uh, is leading that effort to try to diversify the Saudi economy. I think they're very serious about it, and I think the resources put behind it, they see what's happening in UAE, which is diversified in Oman as well. But uh, all of these countries, of varying degrees, are being forced to put in place appropriate adjustments. Some of it is, is by design, some of it is well thought out, some is haphazard, and some of it will be recklessly done. But Iran, I think, is not one I worry about in the short term, and I think Russia's have enormous durability to withstand these prices for some period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me pick up on the Russia point because I think it illustrates some of these trade-offs. So the fiscal break-even is, is a static concept. It's sort of saying right now, you know, what is the price with the policies we have in place? What is the price we need to make things balance? And so for Russia's, you know, they're hemorrhaging money at this point. Now they had large asset balances they could draw down and of course in the Gulf as well, they can do this for, for some time. And so certainly you can try and calculate how long do they last. And a lot of these sovereign wealth funds, including in Russia, is not fully transparent. How much is there? How much is liquid and usable? And of course, the politics of whether it can be used can be an issue as well. But then as you get lower, then you have to ask, well, what are the next policy steps you can do? Is it cutting investment? One of the things we see in Russia, which I think is indicative of other uh, oil exporters, but is particularly an issue in Russia, is that if you have a country where the majority of their export revenue and budgetary revenue comes from oil. So the budgets in domestic currency, in rubles in this case, oil sold for dollars, a devaluation helps the budget. So if you say, put together a budget in the fall, assuming $55 a barrel, that is as much a political statement as much as an economic judgment and saying we're going to try and balance interests and put together a budget that maintains social, you know, maintains our politics uh, with uh, at this price and allocating resources then for the military, for social spending and the like. And then prices are 30. What do you do about it? Uh, you can renegotiate. We saw that in Saudi Arabia in some sense, announcements about change of the safety net, which in a sense was recalibrating the budget to a lower price. And that's one way to, to, square, to, to close the gap. In Russia, easier monetary policy by depreciating the exchange rate and raising the domestic value of that oil revenue shifts money to the budget. It is a way of you know, easing those pressure points. Now, where does that money come from? It's a tax on consumers and particularly those with fixed income. So that's a common kind of element many of these countries are, are particularly those that don't have pegged rates. The Gulf, there's a lot of pegged rates and changing it would be very disruptive. But where countries have flexible rates, that is one element of the dimension that feeds into the politics very readily because it is a shift to resources. Now, one of the things that's striking about if, Russia- If we, sorry. this has been a great explanation, but, um, Probably going to end it. Thank you, uh, Senator Gardner. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this hearing, and thank you to the witnesses for being here today. And I, too, want to echo Senator Menendez's comments on North Korea. Uh, the resolution out of the United Nations reflected much of the language and the work that we had done here and our sanctions on North Korea. Uh, obviously, one of the areas where they did not go as far as we did was on the issue of cyber sanctions, and I hope that we can continue to work with our, our partners at the United Nations to uh, continue to look at United Nations uh, sanctions, act, excuse me, cyber activities and sanctions activities that follow from a cyber attack out of North Korea and beyond, and particularly as it, rate, as it relates to perhaps North Korean activities through China and others. So uh, congratulations to, again, uh, a very good resolution out of the United Nations. So thank you. Um, to the witnesses today, you know, one of the things that, that I think you've touched on a little bit here, and uh, we're seeing more and more in the news, uh, just yesterday the Moody's Investors Service, I guess on Wednesday, of, uh, 14 hours ago, when was that? Today's, uh, just, so just today, uh, Moody's Investors Service lowered the outlook on China's credit rating from stable to negative, citing a weakening of fiscal metrics and a continuing fall in foreign exchange reserves. Uh, we see headlines where China to lay off five to six million workers and uh, earmarks $23 billion uh, to help pay for those layoffs uh, in steel sectors and other sectors. Uh, what does this mean for the price of oil? If they're shedding five to six million people here, what does this mean as more layoffs are coming as anticipated in industrial sectors in China? And how does that affect the outlook for uh, our, our oil price? Sure. There, there are two elements at work here with China, and I just, I was just in China, just got back uh, 24 hours ago. There's a structural shift that's going on in the nature of uh, composition of growth from sort of smokestack, heavy industry to services, uh, and and more high tech. So that's that's impacting the nature and volumes of imports, and we're seeing that if whether it's iron ore exports from Australia or or uh, copper. From, uh, from Chile. So there's structural shifts going on, which, which we've been applauding because we've said that they need to change the nature of growth. The, the structural growth they had in place was not sustainable. And that's part of the explanation why we've seen a slowing in growth. And there's a cyclical component on top of that, which is magnifying the structural. And in fact, we're seeing a substantial slowdown. Official statistics are somewhere between six and a half, seven and a half percent. I think it's something below that. So certainly on a nominal basis, it's substantially below. Below that. as in like, five or six or eight Personally, or nine? I, I think it's probably in the, in the 5 percent range. I mean, who knows? It's a large economy and the, the statistics are of a questionable nature. But we do see substantial reforms. For example, there's enormous overcapacity in many smokestack industries, whether it's aluminum smelting or uh, steel production. And they have been uh, supporting those industries for a long time, either through state-owned enterprises or cheap capital from the financial uh, system. They ought to be shutting those things down, in fact, because it's been, uh, it's been flooding the world with excess capacity and depressing prices. The Chinese been, have been exporting deflationary pressures for years, and they see it even on the, in their own domestic prices. So in some ways, the shutting down of those factories, I think, is good because they're just not, out, they're not economical in, in, in globally competitive terms. But China is slowing structurally. It is slowing cyclically and will continue to have a profound impact on commodity prices generally. They are the price setter at the margin. So how goes China, uh, goes Chile, Angola, uh, uh, Australia? The rippling effects go throughout the global economy. And so as we see these layoffs, though, continue and uh, the shuttering of uh, factories and this, this growth the decline that you talk about, uh, what, what does that do? What does that mean projected uh, price, oil supply, demands in the future? 
Well, if you actually, if you look at real volumes of Chinese import of, of oil, it's actually up. It's, it's plateaued a bit. The, 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 I think the biggest uh, driver of oil prices have been the change in the supply. And it's been in the U.S. because our production has gone up substantially because of unconventional uh, uh, unconventional production. So it's, it's both the supply and demand, but China was a driver both perceptionally and in real terms for many, many years. And uh, I think demand will soften there, but, it, but the perception is that somehow volumes have, have, have uh, plummeted. They haven't. In fact, 2016 will actually see positive increase in oil consumption and imports in China from 2015. It's just not at the same pace, and the supply characteristics of global markets have changed dramatically, and we have enormous inventory sitting around too. And so if you go, if you look at the prices where we're at today, and uh, just looking at the United States, like the prices where we're at today, see where they came off of down to, uh, the last time I think we're at a 12 year, when it, when it dropped down to about $27 a 20%. barrel, I think was about 12 years ago or so, the lowest price in 12 years. Uh, what was our economic growth as a result of that decline in gas prices, say 12 to 15 years ago? When it, 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 I guess the question is, you know, when you see a significant percentage decrease in the price of, of oil, um, what did that do for our economy if there's any sort of comparable time frame for a percentage drop in the price of oil? So if you look at the historical models that look at, say, the, from the performance U.S. economy from the 1970s, it would have predicted for you that the decline in oil on this order of magnitude would have had a material positive effect on U.S. growth because of the consumption benefits that would have come from lower oil prices, from filling up our tanks for... 24, and we would go and spend that. And what's striking is that we did not see that this time. And in some sense, it's an easy answer that the countervailing effect was a very material drop in investment in oil and gas sector uh, because we have just much bigger presence because of the development of, uh, of, of shale. And so the models now, updated, basically show either very small positives or very small negatives from this shock that we've had so far. That last year, I think most of the things I read say a small negative actually for growth. And that is unusual. Now my hope is this year that would swing to positive because consumers that to some extent were still you know, fixing th their balance sheets after the Great Recession, the damage that caused of that, are going to feel better about spending this year than last. And you don't, you're not gonna have the same decline in investment. You won't have 40% every year. So on balance, I do think over time, if the low oil price persists, it will become more positive, but that's a projection, and we are in a new world because of the greater role of energy production in our economy. It's, it's been enormously lagged. The auto sector certainly has been a benefit. If you're selling SUVs, you've certainly benefited, but it, it has been less. Households saved more than we thought than our models told us because I think they were still repairing their, their balance sheets. But it, what, you do see some expansion, obviously, sales in, in SUVs and other mm -hmm. autos. I think you see airline reports of record profits, but the sort of dividend of this low price to the consumer hasn't necessarily resulted in the same kind of reaction from a consumer investment as it did in the 1970s. Would you agree with that? Or could have in the 1970s? It, it, it has not achieved what the standard models would tell you. And I think if you were to get some of the Federal Reserve governors here uh, in front of you, they would also say it has underperformed their own expectations for what it would have done to demand where we are in the cycle. It may just be a lagged effect, and we'll see more of it filter through in 2016 than we did in 2015. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and uh, before turning to Senator Kane, I, I want to thank uh, you and Senator Menendez again and the entire committee for, uh, for its efforts uh, on North Korea, and I really do think it had an impact on 
pushing uh, China and Russia uh, at the Security Council to take action. And I, I, again, if it's implemented properly and held to, um, could make a significant difference. So uh, again, I want to thank everybody on their committee for the contributions and, and the results that occurred. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for doing this hearing. This is a, really opens up a lot of discussion that I know we'll be having, and um, and I appreciate the witnesses for the testimony. I was in uh, Israel once when I was governor in 2009 and met with Shimon Perez, and I asked him, you know, just kind of the open-ended question, sort of at the end of our discussion, what would be something we could do in, in American policy that would really benefit Israel, the U.S.-Israel relationship, and he kind of cryptically said, wean away from your dependence on oil from the Middle East. And he didn't really describe kind of why he viewed that as his top ask. I thought he was going to ask about a defense MOU or something like that. But uh, in, in his way, as a very philosophical thinker, that's what he, you know, put out there. And I get, as I thought about it, he was sort of saying, look, the more you develop your own energy sources, um, and reduce demand on energy from here, or the more you move into non-carbon energy and reduce demand, or the more you increase supply, if you have, uh, if you engage in activities in the United States that will depress prices, there's less money going into um, bellicose economies that want to use extra dollars to engage in adventurism in the region. And I think that's kind of what he was saying, and it's been a remarkable stretch from 2009 to today uh, in terms of that happening. Uh, and some, uh, I think there were policies that drove it and others just good old American ingenuity sometimes in spite of Congress and in spite of policies. But it, uh, nothing is completely good. So I love, I love paying, you know, 20 bucks or less to fill up my car. I haven't, I haven't been in that position for a long time, but you've pointed out a number of the ways where there's both a good side and a downside. We deal with a lot of these petro dictatorships that have been able to prop up their economies because of high oil prices. Um, Paul Collier and other writers talk about kind of resource curse. There's corruption issues that often come from that, but also oil revenues have had a way of buying off opposition uh, as well. And I think a lot of what we deal with in this committee is when we're dealing with challenged relationships, what is the best way to influence behavior? Um, it's interesting that the sanctions discussions that we've had here, we've, we have sanctions discussions about Iran, about Russia, about Venezuela, about North Korea. Three of those nations are nations that lean very heavily on, on petrochemicals and on, on oil. And, um, and all of them are, are pretty significantly affected in a, in a low energy price economy. And it's been interesting, Mr. Chair, kind of sitting here in the discussions we've had about sanctions, I think the balance that we're always trying to strike is um, sanctioning bad behavior is important, but we don't want to let a dictator use our sanction as a way to crush internal political opposition. So you, you, you want to have an internal, ultimately internal political change, political stability is what we're after. And if a dictator mismanages an economy, as was the case with Chavez and Maduro in Venezuela or Putin in Russia. There will be angst that will develop politically that will, that will demand change. But if the dictator can blame it all, and well, the, you know, Congress is sanctioning us. We're, are, you're suffering because of the United States Congress. You're, and blame somebody else. They're going to do that. So we, we often have to really use the sanctions tool in a very fine way and not allow our sanctions to mask 
the mismanagement of economies by dictators who don't know what they're doing, who aren't diversifying the economy, because if we allow it to be masked, then we can sometimes suppress the growth of a political opposition. We're seeing some strong elections uh, in Venezuela, um, some positive elections, at least somewhat positive, in, in Iran. Uh, we, we haven't yet seen the internal political opposition develop in Russia that we would want. There's certainly no development of political opposition that we can see in North Korea. But the low oil price thing really factors into our own calculation of when, to use, when and how to use the sanctions tool. So this is, I just find this to be a very fascinating one. I just want to ask you one question about your thoughts about Russia. Um, low oil prices, if I, if I go back to kind of the Shimon Perez thinking, low oil prices would hurt Russia in the sense of less dollars to engage in adventurism, but there's also a little bit of a sense with Russia that uh, they, they engage in adventurism to take their people's eye off the ball. If the economy is, is hurting and if people are suffering, then let's have a Winter Olympics or a World Cup or let's invade a country um, to try to take everybody's eye off the ball. And as I talk to some of our European counterparts, they, they almost worry even more than an aggressive Russia with money, they kind of almost worry more about a basket case Russia in terms of what that would then produce um, kind of in, the, in Eastern Europe and, and countries that would border. So talk a little bit about kind of, if we see oil prices staying for a while, I know that's a big if, but if we see them relatively low and maybe less volatile, how, how would you see that playing into kind of Russian politics and, and the prospect for adventurism by a Putin who's sometimes used, you know, uh, extraterritorial activity to turn people's attention away from their own political dissatisfaction? That's, an, of course, an extraordinarily hard one to predict. Anyone who tells me they know Putin's mind yeah. uh, is immediately, uh, I, I, I'm careful. Uh, no, you're absolutely right to say the history of sanctions is indeed that, uh, particularly when sanctions are against traditional enemies, there can be a rallying around the leader, and that can strengthen them, at least initially. I don't, that doesn't usually last. It wears right. over time, so you have to be, calibrate your sanctions, be aware of how long it's going to take but also that there is this risk that you cite, and I think we are, a lot of, several of my colleagues at CFR have written are very concerned about that idea that a, 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 a Russia that is running out of money and that can no longer broker the, the deals that underpin uh, the, the current government could look abroad for ways to continue to distract and do it. And certainly that's a concern in the Baltics and it's a concern elsewhere in the region. Uh, you know, I guess I would only argue that uh, you know, ultimately the people that support this government are paying a huge price, yeah. right? And the it works the through the devaluation, importantly. Yeah. It's a huge tax to inflation on people with pensioners, pensions and fixed income. And you, you know, I'm not the, a political scientist, I'm, a, I'm an economist looking at it, but what I can tell you is those costs are mounting, that sanctions are a, a multiplier on these low oil and, and, and a history of really bad policies and really difficult demographics and a lot of other factors that are coming together and that the economic outlook for Russia is really uh, extraordinarily poor and, and one would hope, and that's avoidable in some sense, mm -hmm. so I really would hope that there would be a, a, a political argument that would get some traction within, the, within Russia that the answer is not adventurism, but rather is a rec you know, accommodation with the West. Mr. Could I have Mr. Adams try a quick sure. answer? Sure. That's the only question yeah. I have. The parliamentary elections this year, presidential election cycle back in 2018, as I said, they've cordoned off military expenditures. They've 
uh, really put uh, domestic discretionary spending through the ringer. They've cut education spending, health care. But the president remains incredibly popular uh, in spite of uh, these, uh, these changes. And my last trip to Moscow, it was, it was sobering in the sense that it was blaming the outsiders and sanctions for all the problems. Uh, there is a wariness on behalf of foreign investors to invest. I just received a phone call last night from a large U.S. investor who said the Russian authorities were sounding out pricing on a Eurobond issuance, and U.S. investors are saying, we don't want any part of this. U.S. institutions have pulled out. Financial institutions are very wary of going in. Even European institutions are of questionable. So they are going to have a tough time tapping global capital markets, and they're blowing through their reserves pretty quickly. At some point, 2017, 2018, if dynamics don't change, then they have to change. And to Rob's point, they can benefit by cheapening the currency and, uh, with, with higher domestic inflation and, and putting the burden on their people. But... Uh, with 2018 elections coming up for the president, I suspect they're going to try to find ways to avoid as much pain as possible, and they'll continue to bl blame outsiders. You know, on that same topic, I'll use 30 seconds of my reserve time. The, in the Middle East, it, sectarian divide and tensions have to be increasing with the lack of budget authority and issues that they're dealing with. We're all seeing folks come in and see us, and, you know, I know the... Kurds have been in recently relative to their budgetary issues. But you also wonder about adventurism there or fabricated conflict to just to create the appearance and, and then the reality of instability to, to drive prices there. Because at some point in time, uh, you look at Iraq right now, it's just, it, it is total, totally hugely underwater because of what is happening, and I'm not saying they would do that, but in the region, region, huge pressures, and I wonder about the same type of thing occurring there. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think it was in 2013, Senator McCain and I had the extraordinary and fairly wild experience of sitting with President Yanukovych in Ukraine the night before he was to announce his new gas deal with uh, the Russians at a pretty severe discount, which ended up being one of the precipitating factors of his government's fall. But it was, of course, evidence of some of the other kind of adventurism that Russia takes uh, advantage of in the region, not just moving military assets around, but using its energy largesse to substantially discount arrangements with the governments that then have to pledge some degree of fealty to them. Um, and there's been evidence in the last two months that R Russia's capacity uh, to continue to extend its energy tentacles out into the region is um, is being substantially curtailed. Two pipeline tenders were canceled, uh, one in December to China, I think, and another in January. Um, and I, I guess I just sort of extend Senator Kane's question to ask uh, whether those are signs that already decisions are being made because of limited resources to cancel some of these projects that would have uh, potentially extended their energy reach, or whether that's simply a question of uh, this lack of access to financing uh, that you referenced, or are we seeing their inability, are we already seeing some substantial inability to extend energy projects um, uh, that maybe uh, sug you know, sug suggest already a conversation about how this adventurism starts to get rolled back? 
Yes, Senator, that's exactly the case. We're seeing you know, Russian oil production infrastructure is pretty dated, uh, and it desperately needs investment. Uh, that investment has been curtailed, and the longer it's curtailed, then it certainly limits their capacity, not only for domestic production, but to tie into other systems. And because of lack of international uh, uh, financing through capital markets and their lack of own domestic investment resources, it does constrain and the sanctions themselves. Just getting oil field equipment into the country has become a problem. So the sanctions in that respect are biting without question. I think one of the interesting way, what we've learned is that one of the interesting ways financial sanctions, when they're combined with the sectoral sanctions we have in place in Russia, is it creates a lot of uncertainty that really is a weight on long-term investment. Uh, you know, in that there's a de-risking process that goes on, and that's part of the power of these sanctions, is that if you get caught on the wrong side, you, may, you know, of these things, there can be huge brand penalties, there can be financial penalties, as some banks have found for violating sanctions and the like. And I think that that's persistent. You know, it's something that grows over time, and I think we're seeing it. So, for example, on the bond deal that Tim mentioned, it's not explicitly ruled out by the sanctions for U.S. banks to participate, but after consultations, it would be very clear for all the U.S. institutions, this was not really worth it because of the risks to the brand, but also the risk that if you make a mistake, the costs are extraordinary. For better or for worse, that is part of the way these, the new sanctions that we've developed are working. And I think that that is not something that you can turn around in a day in some sense. If I were managing a large bank, I'd be very cautious about re-engaging you, investments. You've, you've painted a picture in which, uh, in 2016, Russia will have very limited choices with which to continue to keep the operation going. And um, you've hinted at something that we all understand, which is that if you move forward with the valuation and pass the costs of that along to, uh, to, to the Russian economy and to citizens, there's a major political risk uh, to that. And so let's say that Putin makes a calculation that that just simply isn't worth it. Um, uh, if that's the case, uh, can he continue to wall off military expenditures in the way that both of you have referred to? Um, or is that a, a natural next step uh, if he chooses not to move forward with some substantial uh, devaluation? It's a natural next step, but I would hazard a guess about the timing. Our friends across the river probably have a better perspective of what that looks like than I could give you. Um, let me just uh, switch uh, topics. I want to talk a little bit about the future of, uh, of shale exploration. Um, so in Connecticut, we've got these two casinos, and um, uh, they built up over years and years and years um, under the expectation that there was uh, never going to be another casino there, shape or size, in the region. Um, and they made some big investments uh, that paid off for a long period of time, and then lo and behold, uh, the politics changed in surrounding uh, uh, states, and casinos started to pop up, and their investments started to um, uh, started to become very problematic for them. Now they'll figure it out, uh, but it feels a little bit to me like the shale discussion today, which is that we made a big bet on uh, shale and tight gas and oil here. It's paying off for us in spades today, um, and we seem to kind of expect that either politics or technology is going to keep us in an advantage position for a very, very long time, and, and, and there's, there's nothing to stop the 
uh, Europeans or, or others who may have political problems from starting to get over those, uh, nor eventually is there anything to stop the technology that may not be available to other countries to eventually find their way there. Maybe the sanctions today stop Russia uh, from getting access to that technology, but we can't assume that's permanent. So what's the, what's the likelihood that this revolution expands in meaningful ways to other parts of the world? And then what are the consequences to the U.S. economy of our bounty being shared in uh, a way that it isn't today. You sort of had this very interesting point, which is that maybe the reason for um, a lack of, of, of immediate economic expansion um, based on low oil prices is in part because of the big play we've made here. Well, what happens if all of a sudden that's not a U.S. play any longer? That's a much more global play. I'm not an oil expert, but it's my understanding that a lot of the shale properties that are no longer financially viable and because they issued uh, high yield debt or blowing up or the banks are calling their loans. Those assets are being redeployed. So a lot of firms in Texas, other oil companies who are buying those resources with the view that over the medium long term prices will come back and those fields will be economic once again. And the technology continues to improve and prices of production continue to drop. There, you know, the world is, is awash with places in which that technology can be exploited. China, for example, in the northwest part of the country. Uh, has enormous shale deposits. There's, there's no water there, so the technology has to continue to evolve so that you can't use water for fracking. But as the technology has evolved, and there's enormous opportunity, it's the politics in Europe which really keep it from happening now, but in Poland and a whole host of other places in Central and Eastern Europe, there are great uh, shale deposits. So once the technology is available, it is available globally. Firms that can't sell it domestically will be selling it globally. I think it's been a game changer. And it was a game changer that was done by entrepreneurs and visionaries and small firms employing technology. It really wasn't the majors that did it. So it's, it, I think it's a great U.S. story, but it's one that's not contained in the U.S. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shane. Thank you. And thank you both for being here. I'm sorry that I have missed um, some of the discussion today. So if you have already discussed some of these issues that I'm going to raise, please forgive me. Um, there's been a fair amount of discussion about the Russian influence and Russia's use of energy to influence actions in Eastern Europe and in Europe in general. I want to talk about the opposite side of that, which is what Europe can do while we've got this period of declining oil prices and um, some the sanctions on Russia that limits um, some of its investments, what Europe is doing to look at future energy um, sources for Europe. And um, Dr. Khan, you were at our subcommittee hearing on Greece last year, and I think we talked about Greece and the pipeline that's um, being permitted across the middle of Greece, which would provide for some spurs that would help um, Eastern Europe as they're looking at energy. So can, can you and um, Mr. Adams talk a little bit about what you see happening in Europe and to get out ahead of what happens at the end of these low oil prices? Well, I think you summarize it very well. Obviously, the politics of diversification in Europe are fraught, uh, particularly in areas like nuclear, but also on, on shale and the like. And so it's, it, it's a difficult debate even for a single country to resolve, and now we have a Europe that is strained by a migration crisis and other governance issues, much less the Greek issue, which we may need to revisit at some point in our conversation. 
um, to, uh, to say that, that, that to, to do the kind of things we think they should do is going to be hard in this current environment. But that said, diversification has got to be strongly stabilizing from a geopolitical perspective. You can't be dependent on these single pipelines that can be turned on and off as an element of political negotiation. And then I would just add on Ukraine, you know, obviously there are legitimate concerns in Europe about the pace of reform in Ukraine right now and the, the government debate that's going on there, which is very messy. Uh, and, and the way in which they're attacking corruption, they, they need to do more, but there needs to be real uh, support for Ukraine conditioned on them doing the hard work. Because ultimately, if Ukraine's adversaries view it as a failed state, as unable to make it through, uh, it encourages the kind of geopolitical issues that we're, that we're worried about. If there's a sense that they're well supported, they're gonna do the right things, they're gonna create a more modern Western-oriented state, I think that's actually very a positive incentive to, uh, for Russia to move in the right direction. Mr. Adams. Ironically, I was sitting in the offices of the uh, International Energy Association in, uh, in Paris on the day when uh, the Russians made a decision to shut off some of the gas to Ukrainians. And they have, as you walk in, this massive map of Europe where the pipelines are located. And you just look at the map and you realize how vulnerable Western Europe is to Russian sources of energy. And they look at that map every single day. So there are ways of diversifying, looking at other pipelines, the Trans-Andriatic, which is uh, from Caspian Gas, the uh, Azerbaijanians are certainly funding the two pipelines. Uh, Algerian gas. The Germans are certainly leading on renewables, I even though German uh, industry complains about the price of energy input. Uh, Chancellor Merkel has been a world leader with respect to solar and alternative forms of energy. So I think they're desperately scrambling to look at alternative sources. It just takes time to build out the infrastructure. But it's certainly a high priority for them. If you look at some of the investment plans that they put in place, the so-called Juncker Plan, which is a way to promote economic growth and infrastructure. Much of that infrastructure is really energy related as a way to reduce their dependency on Russian oil and gas. Thank you. I, I wanna, I know that this hearing is supposed to be on oil and gas prices, but I wonder if I could ask you about coal a little bit because obviously coal has been a huge um, point of contention here in the United States. And um, there are some who believe that that is some of the policies of this administration that have produced a decline in coal production. But can you speak to that and what the world um, market is doing to coal production? He looks at me because I was born and raised in Kentucky and I now live in Virginia. So somehow that makes me a coal expert, I guess. I don't know. I think the majority, meter, majority leader would not want me commenting too much on, on coal. It's outside you, my you don't need to actually to comment on Kentucky yeah. coal, you know, but can you talk about what's happening in China and India and some of the other um, economies where, you know, at least I think we've been told that coal is one of their biggest, it's their biggest source of energy in the future. Are they continuing to go down that road? Are they looking at the reduced prices of oil as um, a substitution for those coal resources? I think for the Chinese, it's uh, it's all the above. Their energy deme uh, demands and needs are enormous. 
you know, I forgot the number of the megawatts of nuclear power they're putting in place every week. So it's all the above, but I think overall it's something like 1,500 megawatts per week of energy consumption they're putting in place. They have a lot of coal domestically. I don't think it's the same quality of coal that you have in the United States. We export a lot of our coal to China. It's a big uh, a buyer of, of U.S. coal. So they, like all other commodities we've been talking about, are a determiner of price at the margin and a determinant of, of the flow of consumption. So absolutely. I hope it's right to add that you know, their own environmental problems right. now are, could be a potential game changer in terms of improving their own incentive, changing their incentives to look for that diversification in a way that they didn't um, a few years ago. And then also tying it back into a point that, that Tim made earlier, Ironically, perhaps in some sense, the rebalancing of the economy away from heavy machinery and, and industry towards services and a more consumer-based economy, ironically, is not is a shift away from demand for those things. So uh, I would I, absolutely a stated Chinese policy: green growth, sustainable growth. Yeah. I think they're serious about it. I don't think they're willing to let uh, hard landing occur because of it, but I do think they are serious and adamant about putting in place appropriate environmental. Uh, restrictions, you know, they're putting the scrubbers on. I think they're doing what they need to do. Are the scrubbers always on? I don't know. But I think they are serious and focused. It's just their needs are so enormous. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cardin. I just really wanted to get your view on one point about Russia. Russia obviously is beginning more aggressive in its engagements. We've seen that in Ukraine. We've seen it in Syria. Uh, you indicated that they have the ability to deal with their foreign exchange rates, which I fully understand, and they can manipulate that, as has China when it was to their advantage to manipulate their exchange rates. And it seems like it has not affected the popular support or political support in China or Russia. So it seems like there's still, uh, uh, that tool is very much available to, to manipulate the true impact on their economy by a hidden tax to their people. So I'm just trying to figure out in these low energy prices, what the United States should be doing strategically as it relates to Russia, if there are issues we can do uh, you mentioned alternative pipelines in Europe, which would be wonderful, but with low energy prices, the investments there are more difficult. So is there a strategic, is there a strategy that we should be looking at with low energy prices as it affects the geopolitical influence of Russia? Uh. I mean, ultimately, I've always viewed the uh, sanctions as really the the key dial that can be turned. In terms of Ukrainian sanctions, uh, sanctions on Russia coming out of the Ukraine. In a sense, we made a conscious decision at the start of that not to go for kind of what you might call the nuclear option of comprehensive sanctions, but to start with more modest sanctions and to gradually intensify them over time in response to. Uh, Russia's behavior, tre treatment of Ukraine. And I think ultimately that's still one of the key policy dimensions. That's going to be a real challenge there. moving forward. Absolutely. All, everything we're hearing from Europe is that uh, if Minsk II goes forward, mm -hmm. then the sanctions are unlikely to continue. And if Minsk yeah. II does not go forward, 
because of the slow progress within Ukraine on reform, yeah. uh, that it's going to be difficult to extend those sanctions in, in Europe. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I'm, uh, the only caveat I'd put on that is, is in, the, in this new world we live in of the use of financial sanctions, there is some capacity for the U.S. to continue on with our own sanctions, even without Europe being moving with us hand in hand in a way that wasn't possible in in the in the in the in the old world of trade sanctions, financial sanctions can be extended beyond our borders and can be effective. Um, obviously, this also entered the debate about uh, issues about our own policies towards natural gas and natural gas sales. And I, but as a macroeconomist, I guess I would come back to, uh, although I know it's it's not necessarily it's a hard one. Is uh, Tim was just at the. Out at the G20 finance ministers meeting, and, and you know we just need Europe to do more growth-oriented policies and to be promoting growth in, in, in you know through using the fiscal space they have, using all the monetary tools they have, doing the structural reforms. I think I share the frustration many have that growth has been quite weak over the last several years there, uh, and that uh, you know a strong and prosperous Europe is probably the the and best. The challenges there are immense uh, from what we see with migration to yeah. problems continuing in Greece and other countries to yeah. Great Britain's decision in June. All those are questioning the strength of Europe. So you haven't given me any optimism yet of what we should be doing with low energy prices against Russia, so. Well, I, I, I'm not optimistic that you can do much of anything, actually. I think the price, I think low oil prices are certainly containing some of the behavior, is certainly having a deleterious impact on certain sectors. It's making, the, it's forcing tough decisions. Uh, over time, it will continue to bite. But, you know, this is a, and I'm way outside my remit on this one, but this is a people that have, that have endured enormous hardships over the decades and centuries. And in my trips to mostly Moscow, I don't sense anyone who's willing to jump ship because times have gotten tough. The president remains incredibly popular. There's not a real viable opposition. There's, and they've done a very good job of blaming current pain on external actors such as the US. And so there may be marginal changes, but I think we are where we are. And I, I'm, I'm skeptical we can do much more. Well, I thank you for your candor. Didn't particularly like the answers, but I appreciate your candor. And I would, just, I know Senator Sheen would like to ask another question. I would just say, you know, the fact that he's not had, I think everyone would agree, much pushback, much physical pushback on the adventurism. Um, there hasn't been much of a price for him to pay, and it has, in fact, uh, created a lot of nationalism within the country. So, uh, Senator Shaheen. Um, just a final question, and this is, this is off of energy, but it goes to the comments you were making about Europe and its potential growth policies. Um, because one of the things that I understand is challenging for Europe, as it's going to be for the U.S. in the future, is the declining workforce. Indeed. And the, one, of, one of the opportunities they have with the migrant crisis is to provide uh, additional workers that they really need for their economies. And so is there anybody in Europe who is talking about this, who is looking at this as a real opportunity as opposed to um, just the negative aspects of that? 
You know, Senator, it's a great question because demographics, I think, are determined of so many different things. It's a growing population in the industrialized world, in China especially. But in many of the emerging markets, we see demographic changes. Our perception is emerging markets are young people. Uh, but in fact, in many emerging markets, the populations are growing older. The irony is that in the, the Gulf uh, oil producing countries, two thirds of the population are under the age of 30. And if you right. extend to the broader MENA region, it's also. So the very young population without great prospects of economic activity or housing or, uh, or, uh, or prosperity, actually. So that feeds in some of the concerns here. Uh, actually, German authorities, in my conversations with them, are very sensitive to this skills issue. They say that many of the people they're letting in, whether they're Syrians or from other nationalities, they're going through an appropriate screening uh, program, they're being placed in certain cities, and they're actually initiating a kind of an internship or uh, a, a skills training exercise mm -hmm. in language. But their view is they need workers, they need workers assembly line, they need, you know, and, and many of these Syrians are trained professionals, right. are well-educated, uh, and they're doing, they have, they have a, in fact, a very uh, robust and I would say a very complex and probably underappreciated mechanism for assimilating some of these migrants into the local economy, into the local workforce. So I haven't seen that with respect to other countries, right. but certainly in Germany, they do have a plan and they seem to be executing on it. The only point I'd add is uh, the, the free flow of labor within Europe is a founding principle of a successful monetary and financial union. I can't imagine one without the other, and that's why this debate that's taking place right now is, is actually so critically important, I think, for the, on the economic side as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think George Soros may have been in to see in the last day or two. I know he's been saying this. Okay, okay. Let me ask you this question. I, I, the investment in infrastructure to create the greater sources of, of petroleum resources for Europe, obviously is something we've worked on for some time with other countries. Uh, some of the, one of the pipelines that Russia had long planned on um, obviously doesn't have the support that it once had. But I guess during this period of time of, of, uh, of low prices uh, could put increasing pressure on those projects not occurring and us not taking advantage of uh, hugely strategic opportunity to cause Europe to be much less dependent on Russia. Um, are you seeing any sign of that right now with, with uh, I know here in our own country, obviously we are. I would imagine you'd be seeing that there, but can you give us a perspective on just the building out of pipelines and infrastructure and the effect these prices are having on that? Sure, Senator. In fact, there's a bigger challenge out there on infrastructure. McKinsey estimates that we need uh, between 50 and 70 trillion dollars worth of infrastructure between now and 2025, but the financing of that infrastructure is lacking. I was in uh, Melbourne, Australia a week ago today and meeting with the Future Fund, which is their, their savings fund, and asked about how they're allocating the resources. They have a large percentage of their resources in cash, which means, which means they can't meet their pension liabilities. And I said, what about infrastructure? They said the biggest problem with investing in any kind of infrastructure is the political risk of the rules or regulations changing once the infrastructure is put in place. So if you're making uh, project assum assumptions based on 30 or 40 years and governments change and the fee structure changes, then all of a sudden your project that maybe was just barely making money, three or 4% return is then underwater. So there's really, a, there's a real reluctance 
on behalf of those who are suppliers of capital to look at infrastructure with concerns about political risk. The other is that there's so much interest in infrastructure around the world and a lot of people trying to do deals, the returns on those, those infrastructure projects seem to have been depressed. Third is that uh, European institutions, namely the insurance companies, which have been the normal providers of infrastructure, have gone through regulatory changes, one called Solvency II, which changes the nature of their balance sheet and forces them to hold shorter term, more liquid instruments. So the capacity of domestic European institutions to fund infrastructure has also diminished, and also capital charges for the banks and the European banks are suffering from MPLs and a whole host of other problems, which we can talk about, have also lessened their appetite for long-term investing. So you, you have less capital, uh, you have wariness by some other sovereign wealth funds and others, which are repatriating capital oil producers, and this sense that uh, the rules of the game can change. And that's why we had the so-called Juncker Plan, which is a way of using centralized money as a way to, to catalyze private money to invest in, in oil and gas infrastructure in Europe. But I'll tell you, it's been very slow in, in coming, and I'm skeptical we're going to see it anytime soon. There's certainly the need is there, but there's this funding. There's a market failure, and there's a funding gap going on, which is not only just on energy, but infrastructure globally. You want to add anything, Dr. <clears throat> Let me just mention you both have been outstanding witnesses, and uh, it's a privilege for us to have people like you who spend your lives in these arenas that uh, help us make decisions, so at least get a good perspective on what's happening. And I have to say, uh, while there, you would think there'd be significant benefits societally to, uh, to low energy prices, and hopefully, as y'all mentioned, this hadn't worked out exactly the way it did in the 70s uh, and 80s, but maybe at some point it will. Um, there are huge negatives that are taking place uh, and will take place over time. And I, I think you coming in, just the stabilizing, destabilizing uh, forces that are going to be taking place over time are things that we certainly need to stay focused on. So thank you both for your expertise, your willingness to be here, especially after just returning from China. And if we could, I'm sure there'll be other questions. Uh, we'd like to keep the record open until the close of business Friday. If you could respond fairly quickly, we would appreciate it. But uh, again, thank you very much. And with that, the meeting's adjourned. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.